There's a word that I've noticed that comes up a lot in our teaching, especially in talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs of the Jewish faith, the great patriarchs of, of faith itself. And in the Bible, and as we study these lives over and over, I've just kind of picked up in my notes that there's a word that I keep typing. And the word is finally. Finally. Because as we study these, these men, their lives are like a roller coaster. And all the, you know, they're doing so well. And we're so proud of them. We're like, all right, Jacob's getting it, finally. And then he crashes and burns. We go, oh, man, Jacob. But then finally, something good happens. We're, all right, Jacob, you got it, finally. And then he crashes and burns. And it's an up and down thing. I'm really looking forward to getting to Joseph. Because even though his life is many times in the pits, his faith doesn't ever seem to go there. Joseph is one of two people in the Bible outside of Jesus, who you look at their whole entire life and just say, wow, Joseph and Daniel are the two guys. Everybody else, up and down, up and down, they blow it, and they're just like we are. And I, I would imagine that Joseph and Daniel both are as well, but you just don't see it. So I'm looking forward to getting to Joseph. What's exciting to me also is that in Genesis, we're in chapter 34, 35 tonight. We're close to the end. Now, I know there are 50 chapters, but we're going to move pretty rapidly from here on out. And we're going to get into the story of Joseph. And when we finish that, long about September, by my calculations, if Jesus hasn't come yet, we're going to head into Exodus. And that study is going to be awesome. And I'm already just, I'm pumped. So I'm excited about that. Hebrews chapter 11, though, tells us something of these men. Because with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with all three of them, there are those moments when we can say, finally, finally, they seem to get it. Verse 17 of Hebrews 11 says the following, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, which is, which, from which he also received him back as a type. And we talked about that. Isaac was a type, a picture of Jesus. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. And you may recall that Isaac made that decision that after Jacob had tricked him, he realized that Jacob was the one who was supposed to be blessed anyway. And that's a story in and of itself, but Isaac, out of faith, went ahead and blessed Jacob, understanding, realizing that God had foretold that Jacob would be the heir. But going on to verse 21, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, I love this, leaning on the top of his staff. At his death, as he's blessing them, he's leaning on his staff. Why? Because of his hip. Remember, because his hip had been wrenched in that dream, in that wrestling match, not dream, that literal wrestling match with God, and he lived the whole rest of his life, even all the way up to his deathbed. He's leaning on the top of his staff. He's limping. He needs God the Father. And I think the key to all of these finalities, for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, the key to finally getting there, and this is important for us as well, is faith. It's faith. Faith gets us there. Faith in the Lord's faithfulness not only yields fruit in our lives today, but it moves us along the path until we get to the ultimate, finally. When by grace we will hear the Lord say, I pray, well done, good and faithful servant. Until that time comes, we're faithless people and we know that. 
We try, we strive for it, we want to be strong in our faith and our belief, but we fall down constantly, time and time again. And yet faith, faith is the getting back up. Faith is the getting up off of your knees, getting up off of your face when you've fallen over and over and saying, God, I know I failed you, but I know your love is perfect, that your grace is perfect, and that even though I'm faithless, you are faithful. Well, go back to Genesis. Genesis 33, actually, in verse 12, skipping back a bit before we get into 34. Genesis 33, verse 12, tells us that Esau said, Let's take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please, let my Lord pass on before his servant... And I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Well, Esau said, well, please, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Sukkah. And built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot. Sukkot means tent or tent town, tent city. So this is where he went to pitch a tent and to live. And actually, instead of pitching a tent, he built a house for himself in Sukkot. Now, I don't know if you notice what I notice here, but after this fantastic reconciliation between the brothers that we talked about on Sunday... Esau wants to stick together. Hey, let's walk back together. Let's go back to Seir together. And Jacob says, no, 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 we're tired. The kids are tired. The cattle are tired. You go on ahead. I'll meet you there. And Esau says, well, okay. Well, then I'll leave some men behind to help you. Oh, no, no, no. I don't need your men. I don't need your help. We're fine. We'll, we'll be along. I'll meet you at Seir. And Jacob never goes to Seir. He never goes. In the middle of this wonderful reconciliation... Jacob is still deceiving. He's still misleading. It's as if Jacob, finally now that they're reconciled, they've hugged, they've embraced, they've wept, they've, they've forgiven each other. And now that this is off Jacob's shoulders, he's like, okay, now I can move on with my life. I don't have to have a relationship with Esau. I just have to be reconciled. Now that we're reconciled, I can move on. On Sunday, we talked about four notes of reconciliation. We said that it's the result of grace... That reconciliation is the responsibility of the reconciled. That it's the right of the heir. And we talked about how it results in peace. But there's a fifth one that I would add to the list. That I just ran across as I was studying this week. And that's this. Reconciliation is the road of relationship. It's the road of relationship. It is not a quick path followed by moving on. It's not patching something up and then getting out of there to move on with your life. It's not about patching up. It's about perseverance. And that's something that I think maybe we miss. All I have to do is just kind of get that moment of forgiveness. And then I can blow the person off and not have anything to do with them. And that misses the point of reconciliation. Now, this is harder than anything we talked about on Sunday. Because for many of us, in broken relationships, even when we get to that point of repair, we are so put out with the person, so tired of the attitude, so not wanting to be around them, that even when we have that moment of forgiveness like Esau and Jacob have, once we have that, good, I'm finished with that. Now I'm going to get on with life. 
this is over. I've reconciled. I did what God said. I made it right. We forgave. We're done. And that was Jacob's attitude. And yet he still has no relationship with his brother. It's gone. The relationship is history. It's superficiality. And it reminds me of Spackle. When I first had our first house, Cheryl and I bought a house. It was a 40-year-old house. And when I first bought it, this thing was a major fixer-upper. We had to redo everything in it. We went into one of the bedrooms that ultimately was Corey's bedroom, and it had wallpaper on, all over the walls. And it was that 1970s wallpaper that was kind of, it had all these designs, but it was raised and fuzzy, you know, and kind of green. It was really sickening looking. So we thought, oh, let's strip that off and let's repaint. And we started stripping off the wallpaper, and we realized that there was no paint or primer or anything that had ever been put underneath it, just wallboard. The people who originally built the house just put wallpaper up, and as we're ripping the wallpaper off, so is coming the wall. Chunks of wall are just coming out onto the floor, and I'm just going, my house is falling apart. Oh no, what am I going to do? Spackle. (laughs) Because I'm a builder of sorts. I'm into construction. I know how to handle these things, how to make a house really look good. And so we just bought jars and jars of spackle, and we're just filling it up with this goo and putting it all over. And then we painted over that, and we said, good, don't anybody touch the walls. It was great. We sold the house three years later because we really didn't care about the house. It was a stepping stone kind of for us. We were moving on. We just patched it up and left it. I don't know what the next people found. You know, when you lean against the wall and go, oh, what's this? Spackle. And that's what Jacob is doing. He's spackling this relationship with Esau. He's getting this reconciliation, but he's not going down the road. He's stopping short of that. I say this because the Father's idea of reconciliation is a journey that He makes with us. When He reconciles us to Him, it's not a quick fix and then He's off to other people. He stays. He walks with. He moves with us. He continues, as you're going to see, to stay with Jacob, to walk with him, to call him back again and again to the house of God, in spite of Jacob's behavior and attitudes. So, Rick, are you saying I need to do more than forgive? No, you don't have to do anything. What I'm saying is that the heart of reconciliation is relationship. So if you truly want to be reconciled, it's not a quick fix. It's not a spackle patch job. It's something that you do with an intention of growing for a lifetime. And that's hard. Again, especially if you've been wronged. Well, unfortunately, Esau goes to Seir, and Jacob goes to Sukkot. And these two brothers, though superficially reconciled, never go any further in their relationship. Seir, by the way, is due south. And Sukkot was due west. Whichever way west. West, south. That way? I don't know. It doesn't matter. He goes west to Seir. He never heads down there. And we have no indication in Scripture or otherwise that he ever did. In fact, the next time Esau and Jacob meet up is going to be at their father Isaac's funeral, which is kind of a typical thing in human relationships, too. Weddings and funerals, we'll see the family there, but aside from that, I don't want to have anything to do with them. So here's old Jacob. He's leaning on the Lord, but he's misleading Esau, and it shows us that old habits die hard. The old deceit is still stirring within. But there's a greater problem here that we'll see tonight. The problem that really is going to plague Jacob now is not so much that old habits die hard, but that old habits damage homes, specifically his. Old habits find their way in. They seep in. Verse 18 of chapter 33. Now Jacob came safely or peacefully or in peace to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. So he's in the promised land now, finally. 
I mean, he, he stayed in Sukkoth, which is not the Promised Land, but finally he's crossed the Jordan, now he's in the Promised Land in Shechem, when he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city. Verse 19, he bought a piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father. So Shechem is both a city and a person. For 100 pieces of money. And then he erected there an altar, and he called it El Elohe Yisrael, which is God is the God of Israel. Now this is a positive step, seemingly, for Jacob. He's gotten into the promised land. Finally, he's out of Patamaram. He's away from the paganism, kind of. He's in the promised land, but he stops in Shechem, and he does something there that no patriarch has done before him. He's the first one. He builds a house. Up to this time, all the patriarchs, that is, Abraham and Isaac, were sojourners. Jacob settles down and builds. He buys land. And the problem, even more than the fact that he settles in, is where he chooses to settle. Now, this Genesis 34, this whole section, we could call old habits damaged homes, or we could call it someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Let's begin. Verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her... Okay, this is a um, little warning. It's PG-13 tonight, okay? Which means we've got some strong subject matter. The prince of the land saw her, he took her, and he lay with her by force. Let me put this as tactfully as I can. Shechem raped Dinah. He took her and he forced her to sleep with him. Although there was no sleeping going on. J. Vernon McGee talking about this story. He said, if they can use that word on television news, I can use it as an old preacher too. He raped her. He violated her. Now, there have been different people questioning this uh, in commentaries, and you can read where some say, well, maybe Dinah was kind of in on it to her, or maybe she kind of loved him too, and, and it just was inappropriate because he wasn't a son, uh, you know, he wasn't one of the Israelites or, or a son of Israel. And I don't read that in the text. What I read is that he took her, the word take being a pretty obvious word, and he lay with her by force. Now, that phrase by force may be translated differently in some of your Bibles. It may be uh, he defiled her or he humiliated her, but it's all the same word with the same indication. He did something she did not want done. Okay? He took her. You okay? He took her, and let me be clear about what's happening here for one reason. For one reason. Not because I want to use the word rape, but isn't it time that we start calling sin what it is? We're living in a culture and in a world that doesn't want to call sin a sin. And it's not because people in our culture are easily offended. It's because the heart of man is so persistently evasive. We don't want to call sin sin. Because the moment we call sin, sin, then we have to feel guilty about it. We have to worry about it. We have to think about what we're really doing. As long as we don't call it that, if we can make up other names for it, well, then we can deal with it a little more easily. Don't call pornography a sin. Call it freedom of speech. Don't call abortion sin. Call it choice. Don't call homosexuality sin. Call it an orientation. Don't be offensive. Just be evasive. And if we can do that, hey, we can make it through okay. 
We don't have to feel guilt or worry. I, I, some of our women went to Canada for a, um, a retreat this last weekend. And this is, so this is second hand that I heard this, and you can correct me if I get this wrong. But they were talking about, Beth Moore, who was the speaker for that retreat, was talking about some new laws that have been put into effect in Canada. And they are as follows. Number one, it is now against the law to read a Bible in public outside of a church. Because the Bible offensively refers to homosexuality as a sin. In Canada, our, our country to the north, our neighbors right there, against the law. It is also against the law to speak ill of homosexuality, which means even a pastor in a church who reads Romans chapter 1 and talks about homosexuality in a negative light would be guilty of violating Canadian law. Let's not call it what it is. Let's avoid the real issue of sin in favor of so-called tolerance and choice and human rights. And folks, it makes me sick. And I don't mean to sound judgmental because I am standing here a sinner. One who has sin in his life that I am very aware of. And have to deal with with the Lord. But if I can't even call it sin, how can I ever come to a place of repentance? How can I ever accept the grace that God offers me and the love and the forgiveness? God doesn't save people and draw people into heaven through tolerance. He is intolerant of sin. He is so intolerant of sin that it caused His own Son to die brutally on the cross to pay for that sin. So let's call it what it is. Shechem raped Dinah. He took her by force. Verse 3. He was now deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the girl, so-called, and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Give me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. But his sons were with his livestock out in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and when they heard it, the men were grieved. And they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. Where is Jacob in all this? Look at what happens here. Jacob hears of this, and he doesn't send word to his sons. He's just kind of brooding over it. He's thinking about it. The sons come in. And are incensed. They are outraged. What? What has happened? And as you're going to see, the sons are immediately going to take charge. And Jacob is not. And folks, where there is no godly leadership in the household, the children will run wild. Proverbs 29.18 tells us where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. And I need to just say this clearly, that the Father is the vision caster in the home. God designed us that way. For the Father to, to lead out in spiritual things, not to lord it over. Lording and leading, two different things. There's only one Lord, that's Jesus, but the leadership. Man, when there is not Father in the home, casting vision, leading out... The people are unrestrained. The children run wild. And it's the unfortunately abdicated role of father as leader and mother as nurturer in this culture that I believe is yielding spiritual chaos. Am I sounding a little archaic? I'm sorry, but this is scripture that we're talking about here. 
Now, as I've said before, when the father is spiritually or otherwise absent from the home, someone else needs to cast a vision for the children. There needs to be spiritual leadership. Dad, take the leadership. Lead your kids. But if there's not a father, 2 Timothy 1.5 tells us something very interesting about one of the great leaders in Scripture, Timothy. Paul's writing Tim a letter and he says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. You know who trained up Timothy in the Lord? His grandma and his mother. Somebody's got to cast the vision of spiritual things in the home. Should be the dad if it can't be. Grandma, grandpa, mom, you do it. So Jacob is silent and his sons begin to run the circus. Read on. Starting in verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, Shechem, this is the rapist, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give you whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me. But give me the girl in marriage. I want her. I lust her. I love her. I want her. Verse 13. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit. Where did they ever learn how to answer with deceit? Hmm. Because he had defiled Dinah their sister. Verse 14, they said to them, um, hmm, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Not that the you know, rape wasn't disgrace enough. Verse 15, Only on this condition we will consent to you if you will become like us in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now, the words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now, he was more respected than all the household of his father. And I just got to ask one question. Can you imagine taking this request back to the men of the city? I want to marry this girl, but here's the deal, guys. We all got to do something to be like this. And um, it's not going to be real comfortable. As a matter of fact, it's probably going to lay you out for two or three days. We all got to get circumcised. I'm not sure how they sold the men of the city on that. Actually, they, I, I am sure. Look at verse 20. It tells us. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, Let's know what they said. These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Sounds nice enough. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Okay. Verse 22. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. And at that moment in the town meeting, you're surely hearing, Oh, no, what? What are you talking about? Not going to happen. Verse 23. Hey, listen up. Will not their livestock and their property and all their animals be ours? Only let, them con let us consent to them, and they will live with us. 
And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. So there's deceit on their part as well. They're looking at Jacob and all of his flocks and herds and family and daughters. We know he had Dinah. There must have been other daughters that aren't mentioned in Scripture. And they're looking at them and saying, we could benefit here. This is not necessarily a bad thing. In two or three days of paying for some wealth and riches for the people of Shechem, this is someone we want investing in our town. So let's go the extra mile. Let's do this thing. That's exactly how Satan works, by the way. I'll, I'll agree to what you want to do with your life. Just, just give me a little bit. I, come and live where I live. Be where I am. You, be a Christian. That's fine. Go ahead and go to church and study the Bible and, and do your Christian things. But, but come live where I live. Watch the things that I've put on your screen. Enjoy the movies that I have produced. Listen to the music that comes from my heart. Go ahead and be who you are. And, and I'll even kind of be like you. I might even come with you to church some Sunday. But I'm going to have you. And I'm going to have what's yours. What's yours will be what's mine. And what's mine will be what's yours. And again, Christianity in the world is in a tenuous state because we're playing that game. The back and forth. The, hey, I'm a Christian, but I live in Shechem. Understand something about Shechem. This is a pagan Canaanite stronghold in the Promised Land. This city is strongly filled with Canaanites. The very type of people that God wanted to get Jacob and his family away from when he called them out of Paddan Aram. Get away from Paddan Aram and get back into the promised land where you can be away, separated from these people. So Jacob crosses into the promised land and goes to the first city that is like what he has been used to. A pagan place. So Hamor and Shechem have a scheming agenda too, but they don't have a clue as to what's going to happen to them. Verse 25, this is unbelievable. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword. These are the sons of Israel here. And took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Now Jacob's sons, so all the rest of Jacob's boys, now came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones, their children, and their wives, even all that was in their houses. So now Jacob has a daughter who's been raped. And for sons, he has mass murderers. Bloodthirsty killers. And no amount of wrong done to Dinah, no matter how bad this was, justifies the sword. Justifies this scandalous sordid behavior or the sinful response. What's interesting to me is of the twelve sons of Jacob, four of them are rather notable. Simeon, Levi, Reuben, as you'll see in a few minutes, and Judah. These four guys really stand out as the bad ones of the group. And they are all sons of Leah. 
Which is interesting to me because Jacob originally wanted to marry, remember, beautiful Rachel, not weak-eyed Leah. The younger, prettier sister, not the older, ugly one. He didn't want to be with her. He ended up with her. He commits polygamy and it creates a mess. And personally, and I may be reading into a bit, but I think here that we see some bitterness on the part of some kids in the family. That their mom is not the loved mother. Rachel was, the other boys. Anyway, however you read it, it's ugly. Simeon and Levi carry out the brutal murders. And Reuben and Judah are going to show their stuff a little bit later on. But now finally, after all this stuff, Jacob enters the fray. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious, that is, stink, smelly, among the inhabitants of the land. Among the Canaanites and the Perizzites and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed, I and all my household. Never mind the fact that this is a horrible sin. Now I'm in trouble again. I just got out of the rock and the hard place a little while ago and you put me right back in it, boys. Verse 31, but they said, well, should he treat our sister as a harlot? No. Should you murder all the men of the city for it? No. But here is Jacob back in trouble again. And you read this, and I had to ponder this one. Why does God insert this story in his word? Granted, it happens. But there are plenty of other things that I'm sure happened in the life of Jacob's family we don't read about. Why is this one here? Why is this in the word? Listen, we have a serious and sad connection between the sins of the sons and the sins of the father. Exodus 34 verse 7 tells us something, and this may have bothered you in the past, it has me. It tells us that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now you read that and you think, so what's that say? Is that saying that God is looking at the sin of one man and he's going to punish now his kids and his kids' kids and his kids' kids' kids and on down the line? For the sin of this guy? That's hardly fair. Why would he visit punishment on them and not just on the original sinner? Now this is my explanation. It's my best understanding of this verse and what's going on here. Because we assume that it's unfair and I don't believe it is. You ask the question, why would God punish a son for his father's sin? And the answer is because the son is repeating his father's sin. He is reenacting his father's sin over and over. Why? Because he learned it from his father. Because sin has something in it, folks. That it's, it, This is a fact, I believe, of family life. That sin is both hereditary and environment. It's both affected hereditarily, it is passed on, and it's environmental. What do you mean? I mean that environmental is obvious. You grow up in a family where dad is an alcoholic and you learn the behavior. However... There's something hereditary about sin as well. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But I have seen daughters commit the exact same sin of their mothers while not even knowing that their mother had committed that sin. That the sin was completely hidden. Nobody knew about it. And yet the daughter reenacts the exact same thing. Now, that's not behavioral learning. There's something being passed on there and all God is doing is clarifying punishment. God is saying sin will be dealt with. 
it will be dealt with on the father's level and as that same sin is passed on and acted out by the children it will be dealt with there as well and it will continue to be dealt with until someone finally stands up and says I need grace I'm a sinner until someone breaks the cycle of sin being passed on from one generation to the next. Simeon and Levi and the rest of Jacob's sons, they are responsible for these horrible murders and looting the city. However, Jacob is culpable as well. Jacob is responsible too. Why? Because he raised them that way. He raised them up, teaching them to seed. He modeled deceit for his kids, and all they did was take it to the next horrific level. Now, any of you parents who may be sitting there feeling like, oh man, I've messed up my kids for life, welcome to the club. We all mess everybody else up. That's what we do. If you want out of that, if you want to break the cycle, there is one way to do it, and that is grace. Seeking the grace of God. Men, by being spiritual leaders in the family. Ladies, by being spiritual nurturers and growers of faith among the children and in the family. And it also has something to do with changing the way we do business in our families. Which Jacob has yet to do. He's returned to the promised land, as I said, but he's living in Shechem. God calls him out and he comes out but goes right back in to the same type of living environment. He settles for this pagan city. And the bottom line is there's only one way to save Jacob. There's only one way to save his family. And there's only one way to save our families as well as we follow Jesus toward the kingdom. One way to save us. And that is through separation. There must be a separation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. I'll read this to you. Paul says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now before I read any, any more of this, understand, this is not simply or specifically, it's not talking about marriage. We use it for marriage or for boyfriend-girlfriend relationships. Don't date someone who's not a Christian, girls. Don't marry someone who's not a Christian, guys. Don't be bound together with an unbeliever. And we, we apply it to that relationship, but we leave it right there. It is much bigger than that. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. How about in a business relationship? What happens if a Christian connects with a non-Christian in a business relationship and the non-Christian decides not to be ethical? What's the Christian going to do? Go the direction of the non-Christian? Go the way of the unbeliever? Do not, Paul says, be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what argument or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them, I will walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And Christians, we have got to understand this. We are trying far too hard to look like the world today. Churches stripping it all down to look like office buildings. Worship changed from worship to God Almighty to music that sounds radio friendly. Sermons, messages, teachings that never mention things like sin 
and confession and repentance. But never take the time to get into the Word of God. Why? Because we're trying to save the world. We want to save the world. And so we're becoming more and more like the world, hoping that if we are like them, then they can be like us. And we're living in Shechem. We're doing what Jacob was doing. Let's live there. Okay, and you guys be circumcised like we're circumcised. And we'll give you our daughters, and you give us our daughters, and we'll all just be one big happy family. And God says, separate. There's a word that means separate. Kind of a religious Christian type of word. Holy. Be holy, God says, because I am holy. Holiness is separate from. Be separate. Paul says, Romans 12:2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And what is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God? Well, let me ask you this. What's God's priority for your life? What is the number one thing God wants for your life? Do you know what it is? Take a guess. What's the number one thing God wants for you? Happy? What do you think? Is, is that it? Does He just want you to be happy? That's a good guess. Peace? Happiness? Peace? Relationship with Him? Why? So we can be with Him. The number one priority of God for our lives is heaven. That's it. The rest of it, and I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here and, and, and speak for God, but the rest of it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Only that which gets us to heaven. Which is why Jesus said, seek first. First, the kingdom. All these other things, they'll be added to you. God's going to take care of that stuff. But you seek the, the kingdom. You seek heaven. Because that is God's number one priority. Eternity. We talked about that last week. He wants you in eternity. And even if He has to pull you out of the lion's mouth, remember from last week's study? He has to pull you out of the lion's mouth like a little lamb and all He gets is part of your leg. Man, if He can save you, He will. Even if your life is rough and painful and even unhappy, because our lives are a drop compared to the ocean of eternity that God is trying to get us to. And I wonder, do our priorities reflect God's priority? He wants us home. He wants us to be in eternity, in heaven with Him. That's what He wants. Does my lifestyle reflect that as well? As I said, Jacob is the first of the patriarchs to build a house. He's the first one to settle. And God doesn't want us to settle. He wants us to be separate. Not settling... Not relaxing, not laying into the world and just becoming part of Shechem. He wants us to be separate. And if we settle for anything less than eternity, we just might get it. But if we separate, Rick, okay. So now you're sounding like David Koresh. I mean, what are you talking about? A compound on a hill where we all just kind of separate and we go away and we hide out there until Jesus comes? No. I'm not talking about that at all. Talking about living for God is the number one priority in your life wherever you are. Okay, but if that's the case, and, and if the way we do church is going to be all about just Scripture and, and really worshiping God and all this, and we're not going to try and relax it and make it look like the world that we live in, how are we going to reach the world? Huh? 
That's a tough question for you. How are we going to evangelize if we're not living there among and in and with and, you know, if we don't look like them, how can we relate to the world? Funny thing about evangelism, and you've seen it happen even here at the bridge, we don't have a single advertisement. People say, hey, how'd you find out about the bridge? I don't know. Saw some cars parked outside a barn and thought maybe church was happening. <laughs> and Mike, you're not the only one who thought that. I mean, there have been numerous people who said, hey, is there a church here? We haven't put one sign up. We haven't put, if someone comes to me and says, Rick, what's making the bridge grow? I don't know. I have no idea. Actually, I do. God's Word. God's Word is growing the bridge. God's Spirit is here. God is doing the evangelism. We take an awful lot on ourselves when we think we can evangelize the world. Folks, we don't have that power. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. How does He do it? By showing the world what people look like who are separate. By revealing to the world how wonderful the life in Christ is because people are living that life, not quietly setting that life aside to try and relate to the world. I think we need to spend less time on relatability and more time living with Jesus in the reconciliation He has called us to. We haven't had one door-knocking campaign in, in, in the Island County yet. And yet, people come. Think about this, gang. Does God want people to hear His Word? Does God want people to be worshiping Him? Does He want people to be drawn into spiritual fellowship with other believers? Then trust Him. It will happen. Oh, good, I don't have to talk about Jesus at work tomorrow. No, 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 I didn't say that. I'm not letting anybody off the hook there. But you live your life for Jesus. You live a separate life, not bound up and tied to and acting like the things of the world. And I guarantee you, evangelism will happen. God will make it happen. He will be touching people that you never even thought were being touched by the life that you live. you got to move out of Shechem. Our model for evangelism, it's, it's prayer and it's the ministry of the world and it's that simple. Now we've been talking about Jacob and in his life, we looked at a little outline that we've used for the last few weeks. The saving of Jacob in chapter 28. The subduing of Jacob in chapters 29 through 32. The sanctifying of Jacob in chapters 33 and 34 and now in 35 as we move on into it. The separating of Jacob. The separating. It's time for Jacob to understand something of holiness. Now Jacob is reeling from the sin of the region and the sin of his own sons when suddenly the cell phone rings and God is calling. Genesis 35 verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And I love this. I love what God does here. Jacob, your family is falling apart. Your reputation in the community stinks. You're, you're in between a whole new rock and a hard place. What are you going to do next? I don't know. I'm not going to Disneyland. I don't have a clue what to do. I'm stuck here. And what does God do? He comes flying in on that horse and he says, Jacob, if I told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Here's the reason why you're such an abject failure. Here's why you're messing it up. I told you to go to Bethel, but no, you had to build a house in Shechem. What does God do? Arise, Jacob. Come back 
to my house. Bethel, the house of God. And live there. Make an altar there to God. Why? So you can worship me. Who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Come back to Bethel. Jacob, your life's a mess. And here's a clue for us when our lives are a mess. Especially just shrouded in sin. God says, come back to the place where I first saved you. Come back to your salvation. Come back to that moment when you first said, I believe. I accept you, Jesus. Come back to that time when you went down into the water in baptism. Come back to that time when you were sitting praying with a friend into the night and you discovered Jesus and he wrapped his arms around you. Return to the place of your salvation, Jacob. Come back to Bethel. Man, just when you think God couldn't possibly be more angry with the life that you're living and the mess that you're making, He says, hey, just come back to salvation. Come back to me. And let's start again. Verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, and I love this, put away the foreign gods which are among you. You remember the foreign gods that Rachel stole from her? Her dad Laban stole the foreign gods, hid them away, and at that time Jacob had no idea they were there. He does now. As a matter of fact, for several years now, Jacob has been very aware of the pagan gods among his family. And so he says, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let's arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and, listen to this, has been with me wherever I have gone. He knows. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Now, this is interesting to me that the idols and the earrings were kind of one and the same. But if you'd like to know what the, the heredity of earrings is, it had to do with paganism and pagan worship. So, you know, let that do whatever it's going to do for you. I don't know. But in, in this day, that's what they meant. The earrings had to do with paganism. And so Jacob takes it all. Get the earrings out of your ears. Get the idols out of your tents. Bring them to me. And what does he do? He buries them. But, but look at where he buries them. He hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. Kind of like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. He places them somewhere they're not going to be found. He buries them deep in the Middle Eastern sand. Why, Jacob? Because we're through with them. Jacob is now finally stepping up to the plate with his family. He's had a, a relationship with God. It's slowly been growing. There's some faith going on there, but he is finally now stepping out. He's gotten angry with his sons, and now he's turning to his family and saying, this is it, enough. Now, it took murder to get him there, but still, it's something back in Jacob's day. And he's saying, let's get rid of this stuff. Let's hide this stuff. Watch this. Listen to this. He buries them under an oak tree in Shechem, burying idols, false gods, at the foot of of a tree which is exactly what Jesus invites us to do to bring our, 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 our idols our false gods to the foot of another tree a tree called Calvary and to bury them there to leave them there at his feet nailed to his cross to his tree 
And we can be rid of them. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. Paul writes, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so here Jacob is feeling the full weight of his entire sin life played out among his own kids. And God calls him back to Bethel and he says, alright, then we're going back to Bethel, back to the house of God. And before we leave here, we're going to bury all this stuff. And he buries it under the tree. God calls him back to Bethel and Jacob removes these false gods. It's beautiful. We're going to talk more about that on Sunday. Verse 5. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, you might think just at a cursory cursory reading of that, that the great terror was caused by the fact that Jacob's sons went out and murdered all these guys in Shechem. But the actual phrase there, and it may be in some of your translations, is the great terror of God. The terror of the Lord was upon all these people as they were traveling. In other words, God was going before them, beside them, behind them. He was protecting them, and nobody was touching them as they traveled on. Now, you might ask, why would God protect them after such a horrible sin? Why is He making sure they're safe after this horrendous murder? Is He saying that it was okay what they did? No, He's not saying that at all. But we see something here, and that's that God's plan is always bigger than my sin. I can't sin big enough to knock God's plan off course. No matter what I've done or where I've been, God has a plan and He is working it out. And His his plan involved Jacob and his twelve sons, who would be the leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel. And God is going to protect His plan. Doesn't make the sin okay, doesn't make it right, but his plan will be worked out. Because his plan is, is in reaction or response to, or it's not the right way to put it. God's plan will be worked out because his plan is to save us from the very sin that we commit. It's his plan. Verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz. People are still calling it Luz, meaning, interesting, separated. That is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. Verse 7. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him, and he fled from his brother. Now this is amazing. El Bethel. He changes the name of Bethel. He adds to it. Bethel means the house of God. El Bethel means God of the house of God. And I think we're seeing some amazing maturity here in Jacob. He has just taken a huge leap in spiritual growth, in understanding of what this relationship is truly all about. And what do you mean? It's not the Bridge Christian Fellowship that draws a single person into these doors. It is God of the Bridge Christian Fellowship. It's not the worship that we experienced tonight or that we experienced on a Sunday morning. It's the God of the worship who is to be praised. Gang, it's not even the Bible itself, but it's the fact that it's God's Word that makes it awesome. God, the God of the Bible. God of the house of God. God of this particular church or that particular church. It is the Lord who all these things are simply tools to draw us to. Now I mention that because it's easy for us to slip back and start to focus on the tool as opposed to the Lord Himself. To be in love with the telephone as opposed to the one on the other end of the line. 
God is calling us to Him, God of the house of God. And Jacob finally is getting that. He is understanding that. You know why people lose interest in churches and in Bible studies and in programs? It happens when our journey ends with the tool or the instrument that simply exists to get us to God of the house of God. When we lose focus on the Father, on the Son, on the Holy Spirit, and begin to work out our Christianity in programs and buildings and things of that nature, it gets boring really fast. It's no fun. And it's all about the Bible study itself. Man, I love Bible study. And I hope you do too. I think you do too. But the reason is because it draws us closer to God, the God of the Bible. The God of the Word. So Jacob realizes it's not the place, it's the person of God. Verse 8. Boy. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the oak. And it was named Alan Bakuth. Something has happened here, we must assume. I'll just point out this very quickly. Rebecca. Rebecca has already died. Rebecca, Jacob's mother. Rebecca, who loved him more than she loved Esau. You remember Rebecca? And she sent Jacob away to protect him so that she could see her son again someday, but she never saw him. By the time Jacob makes it back to the promised land, Rebecca has passed away. How do we know this? Well, we find out later in Scripture that she is buried in the cave of Machpelah along with Abraham and, and Sarah and soon to be Isaac as well. But after Rebecca died, her nursemaid, Deborah, who was likely nanny to Jacob, now comes to live with Jacob. She's with Jacob at this time. And Jacob goes up and, and see what's happening here, this wonderful moment. He goes to El Bethel, God of the house of God. He, he builds an altar there. He's worshiping. He's focused. He's into it. And his nursemaid dies. Tragedy strikes in the middle of worship. Jacob is weeping and he's torn apart. Well, how do we know? Because of what he names the place, Alam Bakuth means the oak of weeping. The oak of weeping. Now, Deborah's probably around 180 at the time that this finally happens. But do you ever notice how sometimes these things occur? That you're in the middle of everything's going right in life and you couldn't feel closer to God than you are right now and tragedy strikes. And the question in your faith life is what does it do to you? What does it do to Jacob? Verse 9. Verse 9, before Jacob even has time to do anything. Look at what God does. He appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. And he said, and now God's going to remind him of three things. He says in verse 10, You shall no longer be called Jacob. And he's already said this. But Israel shall be your name and thus he called him Israel and God also said to him I am God Almighty be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you and the land which I give to Abraham and Isaac which I gave to them I will give to you and I will give the land to your descendants after you three things you jot down very quickly verse 10 God gives him a personal name He's already done this once, but he's reminding him, giving him a personal name. You are Israel. Israel literally means, remember it's, it's the contraction, Sarah and El. Prince, ruler, and God. And literally put together, it means governed by God. You're governed by God, Jacob, who is no longer Jacob. You are governed by God, Israel. Let me remind you 
that Jacob is no longer your name. And this name Israel has existed for this people from time immemorial. 1948 was a year that was fraught with biblical prophecy. Things taking place in the last generation. 1948, all kinds of things taking place on the world stage that people never thought would happen. Israel becoming a nation again. But one of the little side notes that took place was the naming of Israel. I don't know if you knew this, there were several names that were thrown out. Zion was a possibility. There were some other names that they were trying to consider for the people of Israel, but it finally came back to when they really sat down and looked at it, they realized there was only one possible name for the Jewish people and the Jewish state that they were about to launch. Israel. Israel. The people governed by God. Well, verse 11 tells us that God gives them a promised fame. He gave them a personal name, now He gives them a promised fame. And the source of that fame, by the way, is God Almighty. He says, I am God Almighty, first, and because of that, be fruitful and multiply in a nation, and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings will come from you. Jacob, you're going to be famous. Israel, everybody will hear your name. I'm not sure if there's a person alive in the world today who is not aware of Israel. And the name that belongs, the man that belongs to that name. A promised fame. And then in verse 12, a perpetual claim. A perpetual claim. God reiterates the great land covenant that he made with Abraham. And then later came to Isaac and says, Isaac, the land will be yours. And now to Jacob, this land which I gave to Abraham, I will give to you. This is your land. I will give it to you and to your descendants. And folks, it's perpetual. This land is Israel's land back then and now. And don't miss that this land matters to the Lord. And this land matters to the Lord today. And we've mentioned this several times, and here I'll say it again. The moment that America stops backing Israel and supporting its right to the land will be a dark day for America. Because God said, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. The land is Israel's. He still has great plans for it. Its ownership is sure. And its future is actually pretty bright, as dark as it may seem right now. Verse 13. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. God went up. Jacob, in verse 14, set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. And he also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Now, this is a first mention in the Bible, so I'll point this out to you quickly. He pours out a drink offering. This is the first time we see a drink offering being given in the Bible. They'll be talked about later on as we go on into Exodus and further. But this is the first drink offering that we see happening. And it's very interesting what he pours on this little pillar that he sets up. Notice this. He pours out wine and he pours out oil. Wine and oil. What's the deal? Well, wine in the Bible is always a picture of blood. It's always a reminder of blood. Exodus 24, verse 8, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In that moment, God is separating Israel in the book of Exodus. And Moses stands up before them and he begins to sprinkle blood all over the people of Israel. Blood. And God is saying, I'm making a covenant with you guys. 
This is the blood of the covenant. Now listen to this. Mark chapter 14 verse 23. Jesus, the night before he died, was in a room with his apostles. And as he began to talk to them, he talked about things that were confusing and hard and, and they were worried and his countenance was depressed. And Jesus broke bread and passed it around. He said, hey, I want you to eat this. This is my body. But then, in verse 23 of Mark 14, it says, when he had taken a cup, a cup of wine, and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank for it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. Wine in the Bible is a picture of blood. It's a picture of covenant. And Jacob pours wine on the altar. How did he know how to do that? Faith. Spiritual connection with God. Somehow he knew the right thing to do. But he didn't just pour wine that looks like blood. He poured oil. What's the deal with oil? Oil in the Bible always speaks of the Holy Spirit. You've heard of anointing, oil of anointing. When a king was anointed with oil, it was a picture of that king having the Spirit of God rest upon him. When God looked at Saul and said, I'm not going to be your God anymore, and he pulled back and removed himself and put himself on David, who now is anointed, the anointing left Saul. The Holy Spirit left Saul. And as we come to Exodus, we'll see that oil speaks of both offering and anointing, and then it symbolizes the Spirit of God. One last thing on this is very interesting to me. Luke chapter 10. Luke 10 tells us the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story. You've heard it for years and years. Whether you went to church or not, it's, it's a, a story that's actually very common to our culture. The man's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's walking along a very dangerous section of road. He gets nabbed by some robbers. They throw him to the ground. They beat him up. They take all of his possessions and they leave him for dead. Well, a priest comes by and takes a look at the man and says, I'm not going to touch that, and continues on his way. A Levite comes by and sees the man and says, no can do, and he continues on his way. And then comes a Samaritan, an unlikely person. And in the story, Jesus tells us he does something interesting. He pours two things into the wounds of the man lying on the side of the road. Wine and oil. A picture of blood and the Spirit. Because with the blood comes the provision of salvation. And with the oil comes the power of separation. Let me say that again. Get this. With blood comes the provision of our salvation. Without blood there is no forgiveness of sin, the Bible tells us. And so by the blood of Jesus we have our salvation. And even in pouring wine, Jacob is recognizing this. And with the oil, with the oil comes the power of separation. I can't pull myself back from the world, but the Holy Spirit can empower me to do so. The Holy Spirit can help me keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. Blood is provision. Oil is power. And these two together are God's winning, His winning combination. By Jesus' blood we're saved and by His Spirit we are sealed and separated for God. Verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. And when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died. Now she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And there's a problem here. 
The love of Jacob's life dies just as she herself demanded. What? Do you remember what she said to Jacob about having children? She said back in Genesis chapter 30 verse 1, Give me children or else I die. I want kids, Jacob. Oh, Leah's having kids. You can make kids with my ugly sister. Can't you make kids with me? And Jacob says to her, Hey, wait a minute. Am I in the place of God? You want me to play God? Rachel said, Give me children or else I die. And so her death raises the issue of faith and choice. And what I mean by this is that you can ask the Lord for His will in your life. And it's perfect. Or... You have the choice to seek your will from the Lord in your life. And I want you to understand this. Honestly, I think He will bless either one. I think if you're going to the Lord, He's he's going to find a way to bless you. But you can either go to Him with your desires, your will, what you want to have happen, or you can go to Him and say, what do you want to have happen? What's your will for my life? Rachel's will for her life was to have children. And have children she did, but she died in the process. Her will. But she's not the only one who went her own way. There's another caveat to this. And the question is, what might have happened if Jacob had done what God had asked him to do? What did God ask him to do? Look back at verse 1 of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there. Live there. Abide there. Stay there. Dwell there. Go to Bethel, Jacob. This is my will for your life, Jacob. If you're listening, go to Bethel. And there I want you to stay. There I want you to settle. So Jacob goes up to Bethel, and everything's great. He sets up an altar there. He purifies his family. He worships the Lord. And then his nanny dies. And tragedy strikes. And Jacob says, oh, I'm not going to live in Bethel. And so he takes his entire entourage, including his pregnant wife, on a journey. And she dies on the way. Would Rachel have lived if he had stayed in Bethel? I don't know. But I'll tell you what. Putting a pregnant woman on a donkey and sending her on her way... (laughs) It's not a good idea unless Caesar Augustus decrees it. Then it's okay. Well, had Jacob stayed in Bethel, Rachel might not have died. But why did he travel on? We're going to talk more about that on Sunday. But look at verse 19. And I promise you five minutes and we're going to be done. Maybe six. Verse 19. Tells us. See. Oh, one thing real quickly. <laughs> seven, seven. Rachel named him Benoni, and Jacob named the child that's born at her death Benjamin. Well, Benoni means the son of my sorrow. But Jacob looks at that and says, No, his name is not going to be the son of my sorrow. He's going to be the son of my right hand. This kid is my right hand guy. And I'll tell you something Jacob loved Rachel's sons, his sons by Rachel. He loved Joseph. You'll see that soon. He loved Benjamin. And it caused some problems later on down the line. But that's what their names mean. Benoni, son of my sorrow. Benjamin, son of my right hand. So, verse 19, Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob, now watch this, interesting, he set up a pillar over her grave. And that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. 
And by the way, not just when this was written, but to this day, Rachel's grave is still there in Bethlehem, where Jacob originally buried her and set up the pillar. Still there. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it shouldn't surprise us, and yet it does. In a country that's only 200 years old, to know there's a grave that's some 4,000 years old is somewhat amazing. Anyway, the grave is there. And then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. And I think this is fascinating. Jacob, Jacob buried Rachel. Israel moved on. Now, most of the time, Jacob is still going to be referred to as Jacob in the Scriptures. But in this one verse... The writer, the spiritually, you know, the spirit speaking through him, the writer chooses to say that Jacob buried Rachel and then Israel, Israel went forward. What was the one thing in Jacob's life that he wanted more than anything else when he was a young man? It was Rachel. And when Rachel died and he no longer had that one thing that was most important to him, he was able to become Israel. He was able then to live for God. So Jacob buried Rachel. Israel pitched his tent, journeyed on beyond the tower of Eder. Now, this is horrible, and I hate to share this, but it's here, so we will. Verse 22, it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land. And there's an indication maybe Israel was off on his own in that phrase, dwelling in that land, was away from the family for a time. But it came about that Reuben... Reuben the firstborn, Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. What are we talking about here? We're talking about what Paul in 1 Corinthians says is a sin so bad that you should withdraw fellowship from the person who does it. We're talking about a son sleeping with his father's wife. Bilhah, the maidservant of Rachel... Bilhah was also wife to Jacob. For Remember, when Rachel couldn't get pregnant, she said, Take my servant and have children through her for me. And so he marries Bilhah, so now he's got her as a wife too. Remember, he had those four wives, Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and, and Zilpah? Great names. Bilhah now is slept with by Reuben, the firstborn. Reuben, Leah's son. What is going on here? What's with this sickness? Now, there's two possible explanations. I'll just throw these out to you. The first one is a spiteful reason. It's possible that Reuben, because he was Leah's son, Leah's son. Remember, Leah's sons were not loved by Jacob as much as Rachel's boys were. And now Rachel dies. And of the four women, who, who is the one most likely for Jacob to go to for comfort? I would say Bilhah. Because she was the closest one to Rachel. And so out of spite, possibly, Reuben's looking at this whole situation and says, I'm going to take her for myself. You're out dwelling in the land somewhere, Dad. I'm going to take her for me. I'm going to show love to any of the rest of us kids. I'll have her for myself. Well, that's a possibility. The second one is more likely. And that's a pagan reason. Because at the time, in the day, this is the one way to replace the aging father as the patriarch of the family sleep with his wife. And that's what the pagans would do. The firstborn son would say, you know, father's getting old, he's up there, he's kind of out of it. If I sleep with his wife, I now become the patriarch. I now become the leader of the family. I now take charge. Reuben wanted firstborn bill of rights. He wanted his status. He wanted the blessing. He wanted it all, and he wanted it now. And so he sleeps with this woman, his father's wife. Ironically, it will cost him his birthright. And I say ironically because... 
In the same way that Esau lost his birthright to Jacob, now Jacob, when it comes blessing time in Genesis 49, and we'll see this in a few weeks, when it becomes, comes to time to bless, Jacob puts his hand on Reuben's head and says, you don't get it. The birthright, it's not yours. It's Israel, and interesting in the verse that it says that Israel heard of it. He did nothing. Israel heard of it. Not Jacob. Not Jacob who has been a deceiver and a conniver and, and done some bad things. No, Israel heard of it and didn't do anything. Not yet. But he will later. Now, there were twelve sons of Jacob. There were the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel. Joseph and Benjamin and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid. Dan and Naphtali and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid. Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Isaac, Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac comes back into the picture just long enough here to pass away. Verse 29, Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, they buried him. Now, as we stop here tonight, I just want to leave you with this thought. I've gone through quite a bit tonight, two chapters. But the thought is this. God is incredibly, amazingly persistent with Jacob, isn't he? Every time Jacob turns his head, God's there saying, Hey, Jacob, come back to Bethel. And when Jacob launches off in another direction, God comes back and says, Hey, Jacob, remember, your name is Israel, governed by God. Walk with me. Over and over and over in Jacob's life, God persists. God hounds him. He's not put out. He's not fed up. He's not sick of this man. He's just persistent. He is doggedly pursuing Jacob. Jacob is not doggedly pursuing God. It's the other way around. God keeps going after him. Why? Because God is developing a people. Now, you may at times, personally, may look in the mirror. And you may say... God, why do you put up with me? Why do you deal with me? After the stupid things that I do, why do you care about me? And the answer is simple. Because God is developing a person. He is not put out. He's not fed up. He is not sick of you. He's developing you. He's nurturing you. He is growing your faith. He's developing a person. And one day, in the not-too-distant future, we will finally, finally get there.